We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, which is about the time that Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles, and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find in the Bible. They're called the Gospels. And today we're going to be in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. Last week, we continued with our study through the teachings of Jesus at the Last Supper, the the final meal he shared with his disciples in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover on the night he would be arrested, the day before he would be crucified on the cross. Jesus is sharing some of his most important teachings with his disciples, his final opportunity to speak into their lives before he is arrested and murdered. And last week we marveled as we listened in on Jesus sharing five reasons why his disciples should be full of hope even when it felt like the world was ending all around them. This week Jesus continues teaching his disciples as he shifts the subject to peace, specifically why the followers of Jesus should be characterized by a supernatural peace, a peace that has nothing to do with what's going on around them. Today's message is going to speak to all of us about how to deal with feelings of anxiety, feelings of fear, doubt, worry, and uncertainty. I would ask if you're affected by that, but we all are, so I believe we're all going to be encouraged today. We're going to jump in in John chapter 14, verse 19. It says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then underline this, because I live, you will live also. Jesus says, because I live eternally, you will be able to live eternally as well. But did you catch Jesus' timing on this statement. It's interesting to me because Jesus has not yet died and risen again. And yet he speaks as though he already has died and risen from the dead. Why? Because the Lord is the only person who can speak about the future with the same certainty with which we speak of the past. Not only because he holds the future in his hands, but because he is literally in the future as well as the present, as well as the past. Not only is God omnipresent across space, but he is omnipresent across time. He's in all of it, all of the time. And when he speaks about something that's going to take place in the future, he's not saying, this is my plan, this is what I'm hoping for. He's saying, I've already seen it take place and I'm coming back to tell you so that when it happens, you'll know that I'm God. He's the only one who can do that. When the Lord says something's going to take place in the future, it is more certain than what took place five seconds ago in your life or mine. It's future history, as we like to say. Verse 20, he says, at that day, you will know that, and then underline these three statements, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, on the day you arrive in my presence, it's all going to make sense. You're all going to understand everything. When the Apostle Paul wrote about this day in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, For now we see, but like in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. Paul was saying the idea is we see God and understand God like looking into a foggy mirror. We can sort of make out a little bit of who he is, but on the day we arrive in his presence, we're going to understand completely who he is. He is the way that he understands completely who we are right now. Now I want to walk us through these three phrases Jesus uses because there's both glorious truth and glorious mystery contained within them. Listen again to these three phrases. He says, I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. I'm going to do them out of order but for a reason. Firstly, let's look at what it means when Jesus says, you in me, you and me. What does it mean that we are in Christ? What does that mean to be in Christ, in Jesus? Well, let me put it this way. 
If you take a look at all of the ingredients in a Dairy Queen blizzard, you will find many of them disturbing, troubling, dare I say. We're talking fat. We're talking calories. We're talking sugars. This is why none of us look at the ingredients, right? And many other bad things that I'm blissfully unaware of. But you know what? By the time I walk out of Dairy Queen, you don't see all these terrible ingredients. You know why? Because they're in me. Because they're in me. And when the Bible talks about us being in Christ, that's the idea that we're talking about. All of our sin, everything we've ever done wrong was absorbed, it was consumed by Jesus on the cross. And when the Father looks at us, all he sees is Jesus because we are in him in a greater sense than that DQ blizzard would be in me. When we give our lives to Jesus, we become connected to him in a much, much closer way than any of us could possibly conceive. I want to share some verses with you from across the Bible that speak about this. And I'm not going to explain them all. I just want to overwhelm you a bit in a good way with this incredible concept that we are in Christ. In Romans 8, it says, there's now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul calls believers those who are sanctified, how? In Christ Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, for he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. In Ephesians 1, it says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made abound toward us. Also in Ephesians 1, the apostle Paul says that when God's plan for all of earthly history is done, the end goal is that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we've also obtained an inheritance, eternal life. In Ephesians 2, it says, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here is the big idea. Make a note of this on your outlines. Everything that has happened to Jesus has also happened to those who place their faith in him. Everything that has happened to Jesus has also happened to those who place their faith in him. Everything that has happened to Jesus, he did in our place. We were crucified on the cross. How? In Christ. We were raised from the dead. How? In Christ. We conquered death. How? In Christ. We were blessed and seated in heaven. In Christ. We received a kingdom from the Father. In Christ. Everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to us as well because we are in Christ. For those of you who struggle with this idea of what do you mean that I can stand before God and he looks at me and he sees no fault? He sees no sin. Take this literally. It's because we are in Christ. And just like you can't look at me and go, Jeff, you know, you look pretty good, but those ingredients of that blizzard, I can see them in your gut and those things are ugly. You can't do that. You can't see them. 
We are in Christ in the same way that when God the Father looks at us, all he sees is Jesus because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. Secondly, Jesus says, I in you. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Galatians 2. It's on your outlines. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Underline that. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Jesus says that we are in him, it concerns primarily heaven and our eternity. When Jesus says that he is in us, it concerns primarily our time on the earth, the here and now. The idea of the first is that we are in him, in heaven, in eternity. The idea of the second is that he is in us right here, right now, on earth. Last week we read in verses 16 through 18 of the same chapter that Jesus told this to his disciples. It's on your outlines as well. He said, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And we talked about how Jesus begins there by referring to the Holy Spirit as him but then transitions to saying, I will come to you. Because the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And the Holy Spirit being in us is the same as Jesus being in us. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I in you. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, which means that Jesus literally comes into your life. So we're in Jesus in heaven. Jesus is in us on earth. We're one with Christ in a far more intimate way than we realize. But Jesus also says, I am in my Father. So track with me, because this, this is a trip. So if we're in Christ, and Christ is in us, and Christ is in the Father, what does that mean for us? Well, it means we're in the Father too. We're in the Father too. How? Because the Father and Jesus are one, and we are one with Jesus. And you say, Jeff, I don't get it. You know what? Neither do I. Not fully. But here's what we should take away from this. Right now, if you belong to Jesus, you are connected to him in a far more profound and close way than you possibly realize. He is not a God who is out there. You are in Christ. He is in you if you have given your life to him. And in eternity, we're going to be united with Jesus in a far greater way than we can wrap our heads around right now. And to remind us of that glorious truth and just to spark our imaginations with what that might look like. I just want to share a couple of quick verses with you on this subject, verses I love. Speaking of us, those who believe in Jesus, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, for whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, to become like his son, Jesus. That Jesus, he, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's the idea. The idea is that when we arrive in the presence of God, when we're taken off the earth to be with him, or when we die and go to be with him, we receive eternal resurrected bodies. But here's the crazy part. That verse is saying we're going to look like the siblings of Jesus. We're not going to look like that ugly cousin twice removed who's never discovered the miracle of modern dentistry, right? We're going to look like the siblings of Jesus. We're going to look like his family. And the Apostle John tells us the same thing. He says in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But here's what we know, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's a staggering promise. If you didn't know it was in the Bible, you'd think I'm being blasphemous. And Jesus himself made this promise to his followers in Matthew 5. Jesus said, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
We are far more closely connected to Jesus right now than we realize. And in eternity, I think the relationship we're going to enjoy with God is so much more than we think it's going to be. It's so much greater. It's so much bigger. It's so much closer. It is so much more than we can understand right now. Regardless of what you feel like, regardless of what things sometimes look like, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then you are in Christ and he is in you. And I don't know about you, but that encourages me, that blesses me, and it astounds me. It astounds me that God would create that kind of relationship with me. Verse 21, let's read this together. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will love him, and that just means reveal myself to him. And we talked about this last week. Jesus isn't talking about a works-based salvation. He isn't saying, oh, I love you if you do everything I tell you to do. It's not what Jesus is doing. He's delivering the same message that is so beautifully articulated in the book of James in the Bible. Namely, that when a person loves Jesus, they're going to naturally be drawn to obeying the commands of Jesus. Just as when you truly love someone, you want to do things that will bless them, the same is true of the person who loves Jesus. They naturally want to be a blessing to Jesus. It doesn't mean that a believer is perfect. It means that because the Holy Spirit is inside a person, that person will want to follow God with their life. That's the effect the Holy Spirit has on a person's life. Just as fruit is the natural byproduct of a fruit tree, so too is obedience to the commands of Jesus the natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit being in a person, which is what happens when a person gets saved. If a person says, oh, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but they don't want to live anything like the way Jesus has asked them to live, and they don't care about that. They don't care if they're not doing what the Bible says. Then the Bible would say, you need to really check that you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Because there's no fruit. You need to make sure you're a fruit tree. Because if you don't have a desire to bless Jesus by living your life for him, then he might not be in you. And you need to look at that very seriously. Verse 22, Judas, and then he goes out of his way to say, not Iscariot, this is another disciple whose name was also Judas, said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, you'll reveal yourself to us, and not to the world? We'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Again, that, that's not a guilt trip, that's an encouragement. He's promising his disciples that if they'll make their priority loving him, he's saying, make your priority loving me, loving Jesus, then you're going to naturally find yourself keeping my commands. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do that. Jesus goes on and says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Judas asked Jesus, how are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to the whole world? How's it going to be that we're going to see you, but the whole world isn't going to see you at the same time? How's that going to work? And Jesus' answer is essentially this. For now, until Jesus returns in the future to the earth at the second coming, God is going to preserve free will on the earth by revealing himself only to those who will love him. So in other words, if Jesus showed up in the clouds, floating in the sky, big booming voice, I'm Jesus, serve me or die, that would cross some sort of line in the area of free will. Now in order for free will to exist, there has to be this tension, this balance between a revelation of who God is and also having the choice to ignore it. And we might think we know where that balance is, but we're not the ones who get to judge that. God judges, and he judges perfectly, and he says, I am designing things on the earth to give that perfect balance of free will so that anyone who wants to know God, who is serious about seeking God, can find him. But anyone who doesn't really want to know God will be able to not find him. 
they'll get what they want. Everyone will get what they want. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, so Judas, disciples, you love me. You seek me. You want to know me. So you'll find me. So will anyone else who wants to know me and wants to find me. They will end up with me. But the person who doesn't want to know me, I'm not even going to reveal myself to them. And some of that is the grace of God because if the Lord did, that person would have to answer for even more when they stand before God and get judged one day because they would have received even more revelation. And so it's the grace of God to not give them greater revelation because he knows that they're going to ignore it. They're not going to respond to it. If you're serious about knowing God, and if you would give your life to him, if he would reveal himself to you, he will. And he is. And if that's where you're at right now, you need to wake up and smell the coffee because he's doing it right now. You're here, right? Verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, underline the rest of this, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What a precious promise that is. Let me explain. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to do a couple of specific things in the life of the believer. I'm going to talk about them in reverse order because it works better for me. Firstly, the Holy Spirit will, quote, bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So Jesus promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit will remind us of the words of Jesus not just the Gospels, but the Word of God, the Bible. Jesus is the one who authored all 66 books of the Bible. He did it through people, but Jesus put it together. And he promises that the Holy Spirit will bring to our remembrance those verses, those parts of the Bible that we need to know in the moment when we need to know them. Now, I need to point out something really, really obvious here. You cannot be reminded of something you've never known. That's impossible. You cannot be reminded of something you've never known before. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance what he said, but you've got to know what he said. You've got to be taking in the word of God so that God can bring it to your remembrance when you need to know it. State another obvious point. We've got to be taking in the word of God on a daily basis. Read it. Listen to messages where the preacher goes through books of the Bible verse by verse. I know a guy who does that. Come to church and hear the word. And here's what you'll find. This is what's miraculous about this promise. Maybe like me, you're terrible at finding things. You can't find the milk in your refrigerator till your wife, who clearly practices witchcraft, makes it appear when she opens the door. Maybe you're like me. But if you'll take in the word of God even though you can't seem to remember where you put your glasses, your phone, or anything like that, the Holy Spirit, in the moment that you need it, will bring it back to your remembrance. It'll be there. It's incredible how the Holy Spirit does that. That's why time spent in the Word of God is never, ever time wasted. It will apply to your Word today, or it will apply tomorrow. It will apply at a time that you need it. But you've got to get that Word of God into your life so that He can bring it to your remembrance. And the tragedy is that many Christians realize this far too late. The crisis hits, the person dies, the sickness arrives, the difficulty comes, and there's no promises of God that have been stored up in their life and their memory for the Holy Spirit to bring to their remembrance. Store it up. I promise one thing we know about life, difficult times are coming. Everyone's coming out of a crisis or going into a crisis. You're thinking, this is why I come to church for these feel-good messages. That's right. But it's the truth, and we all know it's the cycle of life and you want to be prepared so that your faith will be strong in the moment when you need the promises of God to stand on. Write this down. The Holy Spirit will help you remember the right verse at the right time if it's in you to be remembered. The Holy Spirit will help you remember the right verse at the right time if it's in you to be remembered. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, will teach you all things. I believe there are two ways this applies. 
As you read the word of God, the Holy Spirit will apply it to your life. He will teach you how what you've read applies to your life, your relationships, and your situations. He will help you understand God's word as you read it. He'll do that for you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will instruct you on how to live in those situations that no verse in the Bible specifically addresses. Have you noticed there are some situations where you're like, I'm, I'm looking for a verse, but I can't find the verse that says what boyfriend or girlfriend I should have or shouldn't have. Holy Spirit will speak and say, yes, no. In play, out of bounds, foul ball. Holy Spirit will speak into these moments if we'll listen to him. Now be very careful because if the Holy Spirit happens to sound like exactly what you want to do that moment, be very sure that you're listening to the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it was, Jeff, but Holy Spirit told me to cut that guy off because he needed to be taught a lesson. <sighs> be very, very, very careful. I read a great parody article the other day and it said, um, local man blessed as Holy Spirit tells him to do exactly what he wants to 99% of the time. Be very, very careful that you're listening to the Holy Spirit. And I share that because there are those who will say, oh, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. That's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't read the Bible. It's just a direct connection between me and God. My pastor once pointed out something incredibly insightful to me. He said, Jeff, most people can't tell the difference between their emotions and the Holy Spirit can't tell the difference. So that's why if you're a pastor and you can make people cry, man, I felt the Lord. I felt the Lord. I don't know what that story about that puppy getting run over had to do with anything, but man, I felt the Lord. And that's why a pastor can stand up and berate the congregation, yell at them. You're all sinful, scum, horrible people. You're all awful. And people will feel horrible about themselves, but they'll go, oh, I, I heard the Lord. I heard the Lord. Because most of us can't tell the difference between our emotions and the Holy Spirit. That's why God gave us his word. Because he was like, well, can you read? Because let's start there, okay? Then there's no confusion. That's why the word of God is so precious. The Holy Spirit will help us in those moments when we can't quite seem to find exactly what we're looking for in the word, but the Holy Spirit will never say anything contrary to the word of God. Holy Spirit's not gonna tell you to cut someone off. Why? Because it says, leave room for the wrath of God. It's never gonna do anything that's contrary to the word of God. If you're a believer, I know you've experienced this. If you're married, I know you've experienced this. Perhaps you've been in a disagreement with your spouse and in the middle of a heated conversation, the Holy Spirit says to you, it's time to shut up now. And you know, that's not my thought. The last thing I wanna do right now is shut up, but there is something in me much smarter than me telling me it's time to shut up right now. And here's the problem though. You have to actually do what the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. He's there teaching us all things, leading us and guiding us, but sometimes we're like, la, 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 I don't wanna hear that right now. Don't need to hear that. Tell me afterwards, Holy Spirit, when I can regret not listening to you in the moment. But what a precious promise this is. It's worth memorizing and it's worth claiming. And what I mean by that is this. Next time you're in a situation when you don't know what to do, you can pray, Jesus, you promised me your Holy Spirit would teach me all things. And I need you to lead me right now because I don't know what to do. And I want to honor you in this situation. So just lead me, Holy Spirit. I'm ready to obey. You'll be amazed by what the Lord will do when we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us all things. And what did we read that Jesus promised his disciples in our last study? He said to them, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. You can say, Jesus, you promised that if I asked anything in your name, you would do it. And so I'm asking you to lead me and help me to take the step here that's gonna honor you the most. And he'll do it, he'll speak to you. Write this down. The Holy Spirit will provide guidance in any situation where we ask for help. He'll provide guidance in any situation where we ask for help. Verse 26 is such a precious promise from Jesus. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things 
that I said to you. Thank God this whole Christianity thing doesn't depend on our intellect or our wisdom or our brilliance or lack thereof. Thank God it depends on the Holy Spirit. I was thinking the other day, I was just talking with some friends who don't believe in the Lord, don't have a relationship with the Lord and talking about marriage and relationships and I was just looking back at my life and thinking how blessed I am that when I got married at 20, I was as dumb as any other 20 year old but I had something most 20 year olds didn't have. I had the word of God and I had a model for what marriage was supposed to look like and that model was a trillion million miles away from where my wisdom was at that time which was pretty much non-existent. But I had the wisest model of marriage and this was what I was aiming for from day one in my marriage. Falling short all the time, but having that there, having the Holy Spirit helping along the way. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get married young without the Lord and just shoot in the dark and hope things work out. I'm so thankful for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'd be lost without him, lost without him. Verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Now underline all this. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus promises to give his followers, his disciples, it's, it's you and I, the very same peace that held him together so perfectly during his most difficult times on the earth. We're talking about the kind of peace that holds fast and strong even when it seems like everyone around you hates you and wants to kill you. None of you have been in that situation yet. If you have, you're a little bit dramatic. They literally hated Jesus and wanted to kill him, not just at the end of his life, but at multiple times. They tried to throw him off a cliff or kill him. And Jesus was at peace through all of that. It's not a peace that has anything to do with anything going on in your life at that moment. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So in other words, I'm giving you a peace that's different to the peace that anything or anyone in the world can offer you. Christian, listen to me. This is huge. If you're only at peace when there's nothing to worry about in your life, if you're only at peace when it's smooth sailing, if you're only at peace when everyone's healthy and there's money in the bank accounts, if you're only at peace when there's a solid plan for the next five years of your life, then you do not have the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. You don't have it. Jesus did not say, my peace I give you, by eliminating all problems and difficulties from your life. He said, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. It's a greater peace, it's a higher peace, it's a transcendent peace, an unshakable peace. And tragically, many believers never choose to accept and live and walk in the peace that Jesus offers them. Are you one of those who's never actually chosen to receive that peace from Jesus? Are you living in the peace that he offers? Or is the truth that when a storm hits your life, your reaction is exactly the same as those who don't even believe God exists? That's how you know whether you've got the peace of Jesus or not. When the storms hit your life, when difficulty hits your life, do you respond any differently to people who don't even believe that God exists? So how do you get this peace? How do you live in it? How do you operate in it? What does that look like? Well, let's talk about that. Firstly, make a note of this. This is why they pay me the big bucks for insight like this right here. You can't have the peace of Jesus without Jesus. You can't have the peace of Jesus without Jesus. You can't have the peace of the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit. The first step is giving your life to Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to make a home, to take up residence in your life, in your spirit, in your heart. That's step one. Secondly, you need to understand why you should have peace. It's not a good reason because I went to this church one time and the pastor talked about it and said I could have it and that's all I got. 
You can't just say, I choose to have peace. You have to have reasons for why you have peace. We don't have a faith that's just built on blindness. We have reasons for the hope we have. We have reasons for the peace that we have. So where do you find these reasons? By going to the greatest source of truth in existence, the Word of God, the Bible. It's Jesus himself in print on paper. Read his Word. Take it in and believe it. And you'll discover some incredible reasons why you can have peace. Write this down. Secondly, get into God's Word to discover the reasons you can have peace. You need to discover the reasons you can have peace. Just last week, we studied what Jesus told his disciples minutes earlier, and we learned five reasons we have for hope. There are also reasons we can have peace in any circumstance. If you missed that message, you can listen to it online on our website or watch it. Let me remind you what those five reasons are. If you're a believer in Jesus, five reasons you have for hope and peace that have nothing to do with anything going on in your life right now. Number one, you're going to heaven. (laughs) Number two, Jesus has prepared a specific place in heaven for you, and he's promised he's going to get you there. You're not even the one that has to get you there. Number three, we know the way there. It's Jesus. Number four, we've seen God the Father and experienced his character. In Jesus, we've seen what God the Father is like, and we know that he's only good. I don't care what's going on in your life right now. If you belong to Jesus, God is still good. You can trust that. And number five, we can pray to a God who hears us. Don't ever forget how amazing it is. We pray and the God that made everything out of nothing hears us. Five reasons for peace that have nothing to do with anything going on in your life right now. Take in the word of God. Take in the word of God. And then just to be sure, take in the word of God. You need to know the reasons why you can have peace. How do you get it? Thirdly, write this down, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to rule your life. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to rule your life. Some people are saved, some people belong to Jesus, but they don't have the peace of Jesus because they kept ruling their lives. Holy Spirit tries to teach all things. We're like, no, I'm good, I got it. No need to hear from you, Holy Spirit. In Colossians 3.15, the Apostle Paul says this, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, rule in your hearts. And in the original Greek, the word rule is braboa, braboa. And it means to be an umpire or to arbitrate. When I think of an umpire, I think of a tennis umpire sitting in that elevated chair where he has a good view of the whole game and he can see what's going on in the game better than the players can, even though a lot of the time the players don't think that's true. He really has a better vantage point than the players do. And if you're not familiar with what an arbitrator does, the, the dictionary defines them as an independent person or body officially appointed to settle a dispute. That's important. An independent person or body officially appointed to settle a dispute. Paul says, let the peace of God rule. Let it umpire, let it arbitrate and settle the disputes in your hearts. What disputes? Well, the disputes, the war between your flesh, the body you're in, and your spirit. You see, your flesh only sees and understands things on the temporary surface level. Everything that's happening right now, your emotions, the state your body is in, the circumstances in your life, that's all the flesh can see. And the flesh says, that's all there is to it. How you feel and what's going on in your life, there's nothing more going on. Your spirit belongs to the Lord if you've given it to him. And it sees and understands things at an eternal level. The greater level of true reality. And it understands there's far more going on than we can see and realize at the surface level. When the storm rages and the boat looks like it's going to sink under the waves, the flesh cries out, we're going to die. We're going to be destroyed. This is it. It's hopeless. We're going down. There is no God. Spirit says, calm down. Jesus is in the boat. Jesus is in the boat. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The Lord had freed Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out and delivered them using some of the most spectacular miracles the world had ever seen. He led them across the wilderness 
to the doorstep of the promised land, a land God had prepared just for them, a land described as flowing with milk and honey. And God told the Israelites, go and take it. I'm with you. Every enemy that lives there right now, I'm going to give them over to you. So they send out 12 spies to check out the land. And the spies come back and they say, it's true, this place is fantastic. It's amazing. It's a rich land, an abundant land, an incredible place to live. But there's one problem. There's massive fortified cities all over the place. And inside some of those cities, giants. They're going to chew us up and spit us out if we try to take them on. Only two of the 12, Caleb and Joshua, say, listen, if the Lord said he's going to give us the land, he's going to give us the land. Believe God. He's with us, so we've got nothing to fear. Let's go take the land right now. And there was a dispute, a war between what the flesh said and what the spirit said. And if you know the story, you know that tragically, the children of Israel chose to be ruled by the flesh and allowed their fear to cause them to not believe God. And as a result, God sends them to wander in the wilderness for a generation, 38 years, long enough for all of those who chose to be ruled by the flesh to die out so that Caleb and Joshua can lead a new generation into the promised land. Hear me on this, church. There are believers who spend their life wandering around the wilderness in fear and doubt, anxiety and worry because they refuse to let the peace of God rule in their hearts. They could be enjoying the promised land, the abundant life, but instead they remain in the wilderness because they refuse to believe God. Oh, they believe in God. They just don't believe God. Read the story of Joshua. There are still battles in the promised land, but they're battles that lead to victory because the Lord's with you. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. When you're overwhelmed by fear or doubt or anxiety, take it to the arbitrator to the Holy Spirit and say, there's a dispute here. I'm terrified. And the Holy Spirit will present you with the evidence. Jesus has told you he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's told you he's with you. He's told you he's causing all things to work together for good. He's promised to be perfectly faithful. And when I look at the evidence here, I see you've experienced his faithfulness in your life over and over and over again. And so when we examine the evidence, we can only conclude that you must not be afraid because the Lord is with you. And when you allow the Holy Spirit to umpire, to arbitrate, you will say, I accept your decision. There's no room for fear in my life over this issue. That's what it means to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And to drive this point home, Jesus goes on and says this, underline this as well. Let not your heart be troubled Neither let it be afraid. It's not a suggestion. Did you notice that? It's not a suggestion. It's a command. So write this down. Jesus commands us to live in the peace of his spirit rather than the fear of our flesh. Jesus commands us to live in the peace of his spirit rather than the fear of our flesh. And what do we call it when we disobey a command from Jesus? It's sin. We call it sin. So we don't get to say, I'm not big on faith. It's not my gift. I'm not one of those people. You don't understand how I'm wired. I'm an analyzer. You don't understand my situation. I say this often. Look as closely as you want at that verse in your Bible. There will be no asterisk at the end of that sentence. No asterisk that leads down to a point on the bottom of the page that says, your name and that you don't have to do it because it doesn't apply to you. I promise that's not in any of our Bibles. None of us are the exception to this command. It's for all of us. And when we allow our hearts to be troubled or afraid, and we allow our hearts to remain in that condition, we're disobeying God. We're sinning. We can't pretend that it's something else. Why? Because we're acting like God doesn't know or doesn't care, or isn't powerful enough to do anything about it, 
or didn't see it coming or doesn't have a plan that takes our situation into account. When we allow ourselves to remain troubled and fearful, we disparage the character of God. We defame him. We're sending the message to him and those around us that he's not actually a good and loving father. He doesn't actually hold the whole world in his hands. That's why this is so serious. And if you're struggling with fear or a troubled heart, the starting point isn't being like Beaker from the Muppets. Me, 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 me. That's not the starting point. Starting point is taking your eyes off yourself and asking God for forgiveness. Saying, Lord, I'm sorry for acting like you're not who I know you are. A loving and good father. Please forgive me for acting like that. And as you do that, as you make that confession, you are allowing the peace of God to begin ruling in your heart. And he will. He really, really will. Verse 28, Jesus says, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. This is difficult. It's going to be hard for some of us to hear. It's not going to be light and fluffy like the message has been so far. This is a verse worth remembering every time you have to go through the loss of a loved one who belongs to Jesus. This is what Jesus says about leaving earth to go to heaven when he was the one leaving earth to go to heaven, to his loved ones that he was leaving behind, Jesus said, if you loved me, you'd be happy for me. If you loved me, you would be happy for me. You would rejoice. Yes, there's mourning and grief over the loss that we've suffered. But here's what Jesus is saying. Even more than the grief, Greater than the grief should be your joy for them. Because if you are more dominated by your loss than their gain, then the reality is you love yourself more than you claim to love them. Because you're so focused on what you've lost rather than what they've gained. Is there room for grief? Absolutely. But over and above and beyond the grief should be the joy for that person that they're in the presence of God right now. And when that's true, when we grasp that as believers, that's what brings healing to the grief and pain of losing somebody that you love. That's what does it. Not living in the grief and talking about it forever and never ever moving past it but saying there was a season where I mourned and I grieved, but then I remembered what they've gained. And the joy I feel for them is far greater than the grief I feel for myself. And Jesus says that so graciously and delicately to his disciples. He says, guys, be happy for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna die. And I know you're going to miss me, but you need to be happy for me because of where I'm going. He just gently corrects their perspective. But the truth is there was indeed great benefit to the disciples because, again, everything that happened to Jesus has happened to us as well because we're in Christ. When Jesus benefits, we benefit. So Jesus tells his boys, be glad I'm returning to heaven. Be glad I'm going to the Father because soon you're going to be sharing in all of that with me. Just a quick note for your theological students. When Jesus says, my Father is greater than I, Jesus is saying that in his incarnate state. He's in a human body. He's temporarily given up his God powers. So the Father was greater than Jesus at that moment because Jesus was in his incarnate state. Things are not that way now. You can look up Philippians 2, 9 to 11 for more on that if you want to. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Verse 29, Jesus says, and now I've told you before it comes 
that when it does come to pass, you may believe. You see, the primary purpose of prophecy in the Bible is to prove that God is who he says he is, the one that controls the future and holds all things in his hand. And when we see prophecy fulfilled, it's supposed to build our faith and cause us to marvel and give glory to God for who he is. As we just did when we studied through the book of Daniel and we saw these hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled in documented secular history. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Who's the ruler of this world that Jesus is talking about? Satan. A huge amount of believers still don't know this and understand this. Jesus himself called Satan, quote, the ruler of this world. When Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus doesn't say, you can't do that. You don't even own the kingdoms of the earth. He never disputes Satan's ownership of the kingdoms of the earth. Talked about this many times. When God created the earth, he gave Adam, he gave man the title deed to the earth, so to speak. He said, I want you to steward the earth. I want you to rule over the earth. And he gave that to man. And when we rejected God ruling over us by sinning against him and rebelling against him, we transferred that title deed to the earth to Satan. We did that. And so Satan began to rule the world under some limits placed by God. That's why there's murder and rape and war and famine and corruption and all the awful things we see on the earth today. That's why it is the way it is. Satan is the ruler of this world and we made him that. Now when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and conquered sin by paying for all our sins, he reclaimed that title deed to the earth. And if you're thinking, well, then why isn't everything better? It's because as soon as Jesus applies that title deed, as soon as he cashes it in, so to speak, and reclaims ownership of the earth, there will be no more time for people to choose to follow him. That'll be it. It'll be the end. Either you've chosen Jesus or you haven't, and there's no more room to make a choice. So the Bible tells us that God is being gracious and patient right now by allowing a period of time for people to choose to come into his family and be a part of it. But make no mistake, the day is coming when Jesus will return, take ownership of the earth with his church, and Jesus will rule and reign on the earth, literally, and we'll see what it was meant to be like all the way at the beginning. Jesus says, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Other translations will say, I like it better, he has nothing on me. He's got nothing on me. And I like that. He knew Satan was coming for him. Jesus knew Satan would see to it that he was crucified. But he also knew that Satan didn't have anything on him. No charge that could stick. No sin, no fault, no flaw, no accusation. And because Satan had nothing on Jesus, death would be unable to hold Jesus. And he would rise from the grave victorious over death. Verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father... And as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. It's most likely at this point that Jesus leads his disciples out of the upper room and they begin walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus is going to continue speaking to them as they're walking. You know, Jesus never asks us to do what he himself hasn't done. Jesus says, I've been asked by the Father to do something very difficult. But so that the world may know that I love my Father... I'm going to obey him. And that's what he's asked us to do. He's told us plainly, hey, a lot of the time following me is going to mean carrying your own cross and going through some difficulties. But so that the world may know that you love me, obey my commandments. He's the perfect example. Next week we're going to be studying what I consider to be the single most important teaching in the Bible on how to live the abundant Christian life. It really is. Don't miss it. Come and get the word of God into your life so that the Holy Spirit can bring it to your remembrance when you need it. If you ever struggle to believe or understand how God could look at you and all your issues, all your flaws, all your sin, all your failures, and not be turned off, not be disgusted, I want to remind you that if you've given your life to him, you are in 
Christ and all the Father sees when he looks at you is Jesus. And he loves you the way he loves his son, Jesus. And if that's you, I want to encourage you today, take communion. It's available in the back. And just thank him that you are in Christ. You're in Christ. And if you struggle with fear, anxiety, doubt, worry, whatever, and you're a believer, it needs to stop. It needs to stop. I don't want any of us who claim to be following Jesus to walk out of here thinking it's okay that we go through life troubled and anxious and full of fear. It's not okay. We're not living the way Jesus wants us to live when we choose to live like that. Jesus has made his peace available to you. And so you need to determine today, if that's you, that you're going to let the peace of God umpire, arbitrate, rule in your life. You're going to let the peace of God rule in your heart. Determine that you're going to honor God by no longer acting like he's not with you or doesn't care about you. And then lastly, I just sense there may be some in the room where you've lost a loved one that knew the Lord. And it's just dominated you since it's happened. You just can't get past it. You can't get over it. I want to encourage you to just spend some time in this coming time. Not asking the Lord to comfort you. Not asking him to make you feel better. But just thanking the Lord for what they've gained in heaven. Just do that. Just thank the Lord for where they are, for what he's done for them. And rejoice over that. And I think you might experience some healing today in a more profound way than you ever have before in that area. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, I pray for any person in this room who's lost a loved one who believes in you. Father, I pray that you would fill them with joy over what that person has gained in your presence. That where they are now is somewhere they would never choose to return from even if they had the choice. That there's no comparison between the state of ecstasy and euphoria and, and joy and peace that they are in right now and what their life was like here on the earth. Father, help us to be glad for them. And by rejoicing for them to experience your peace. Understanding that you're offering the same thing to us. And that when we arrive in your presence, our greatest gain will not even be that person. It'll be you. It'll be you. Those who've gone before us that we love are so perfectly fulfilled because they have you. And we can't wait to be with them being perfectly fulfilled by you as well, Jesus. Thank you for that hope and that unshakable peace, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would fill us again with your peace today. A peace that comes from letting your spirit rule in our hearts. May we choose to let your spirit teach us all things. To arbitrate the dispute between the flesh and the spirit in our lives. And may we accept your judgments. That there's nothing to fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, as your word says. And I pray for any among us who are anxious. That we would agree with your word. That it is a greater reality than any circumstance in our life that we are not the one exception to your promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We are not the one exception to your promise that you're with us to the end of the age. We're not the one exception to your promise that you are causing all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We are not the one exception. May your peace rule and reign in our hearts, Jesus. Let me invite you to be still before the Lord, to allow his spirit to speak to you. If you have no idea what that phrase even means, just in your heart, ask God to speak to you. And then be still. He'll speak to you right now. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.